Last week, we looked at the first four of these Beatitudes, where Jesus presents the paradox of the kingdom of God, the strange way in which the kingdom of God comes and the strange way that the people who inhabit the kingdom of God are characterized. He calls them the blessed ones, the people who are flourishing, the people who are happy and whole. And yet when he describes them, he describes situations that seem anything but happy and whole and flourishing and blessed. He describes people who are poor in spirit, people who are mourning, people who are humble and lowly and meek. And he says those people are the ones who are truly flourishing. Those people are the ones who possess the kingdom. Those people are the ones who have the true riches and joy that God offers. And it's very strange. When I read these, you sit there and you think about it, and you're like, how could this be true? And as we talked about last week, they're true because God acts on behalf of his people. God makes promises to his people, and God is with his people. And that's why we can live this paradox in our lives. Not because of our strength, not because of our way to spin the way we look at our lives, not because of something that we construct, because of God. God is with us, and he acts on our behalf. So we're going to see how that theme continues on in these final Beatitudes in verses 7 to 12. So if you would, read along with me. The verse will be on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together for a time in the Word. Our Father, we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts and enlighten them, that we may know the hope to which you have called us and the riches of our glorious inheritance as your saints, and that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us, the very power that raised your Son from the dead and lifted him to your right hand. Show us your glory through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These final Beatitudes, and I'm going to list them out as four Beatitudes. I think the actual final one is, even though it could be broken down as five, I think the last one is actually one large Beatitude. So these final four Beatitudes give us a proactive stance toward life in God's kingdom. It shows us how to actually actively live within a fallen world and fallen relationships. And what Jesus presents us is that true spirituality, real Christian living, does not exist detached from our relationships with others. If you think about the the Beatitudes I just read, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking, even persecution, all of these assume 
a life connected to other people. But in a fallen world, relationships carry a lot of risk, a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment. Charles Schultz, who is uh, the uh, he started, he wrote the, the comic strip Peanuts. He has a great quote. He said, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. We, we love the idea of mankind, but the actual specific people, that's where a lot of difficulty arises. And in a lot of ways, we're all spiritual giants, you know, in our quiet times in the morning with our journals, with our pious thoughts and our great ideas, but when we start interacting with other people, when you put us in close proximity with other sinners, suddenly we realize we're not as spiritual as maybe we thought we were. That's where the rubber meets the road. Life together, life with one another. That's the, what really brings out the sin in us. And that's what really challenges us to think about what it actually means to live out our faith. And Jesus, in contrast, he shatters that illusion of a merely private spirituality and calls us not only to endure the difficulty of relationships with one another, but to flourish in them, to live into them, specifically in the parts where they're the most difficult. Not only to avoid sin, but to extend mercy. Not merely to turn away from impurity, but to pursue a purity of life, an integrity of life with others. Not only to avoid conflict or to minimize conflict, but to make peace. And not only to endure persecution, but to actually rejoice in it and to love and bless the people who are hostile toward us. It's a great challenge to be proactive in those things. But this is, again, where this future hope comes in. The blessing is not in the situation. The blessing is in the promise attached to those things. And the, the, the blessing is in God saying, if you do these things, this marks you out as sons of God. This marks you out as heirs of the kingdom. This is evidence of a great future hope that you possess. And that future hope reaches back into our present and energizes us to live these things people who are around us. Future hope empowers us to live into fallen relationships and to act righteously within them. The people of the kingdom of God act while they wait for their hope. And I think that's the idea we're going to see in these final four Beatitudes. Let's look at this first one. We're going to look at mercy, purity of heart, peacemakers, and the persecuted. And the first Beatitude, the merciful receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is a very important concept in the Scriptures. Mercy grieves over the suffering of others and seeks to alleviate them. Mercy is about lifting the burdens of those who are afflicted. And the Scriptures identify two objects of mercy— those who suffer and those who sin. We are to show mercy to those who suffer and those who sin. The first group, God makes more specific. He identifies these three people groups. The poor, the fatherless, and the widow. 
the most vulnerable in society, the most at risk for being taken advantage of and abused. And he says these are the people that he wants his people to pay special attention to because those are the people that he himself pays special attention to. And each of these groups require external sources for basic provisions, food, shelter, clothing. When you start to read the scriptures, God's concern for the poor, the orphan, and the widow covers the entirety of the Old Testament. You think of the Old Testament, you think that's, that's not really, mercy might not be the first word you think of. You think of, man, that's all, all the judgments and the executions and the plagues and all these types of things. But when you carefully read the Old Testament, you realize it's full of mercy. It's full of mercy. Leviticus 23, 22 commands landowners to leave the edges of their fields for the poor and sojourners to eat from. In other words, don't maximize the profit of your property. It is your property. But it's also an inheritance. And you are called to be generous with it. Leave the edges. Don't maximize profit, but leave it for those who have little. God recognizes that some poverty comes from injustice. He says in Proverbs 13, 23, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. And God himself identifies as a sort of banker for the poor. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay them for his deed. God's people are Sabbath people, people marked by liberation from the bondage of slavery. And just as God lifted the burdens of Pharaoh, so Israel was to lift the burdens of the least of these among them. So mercy is very important. And this is our heritage. The Roman Emperor Julian, he lamented the growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire because it was pulling people away from paganism. And what they were doing to pull people away from paganism was through, and this is his quote, was through their loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, that's what he called Christians, he called them atheists because they didn't worship the pagan gods, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. This Christian mercy transformed an empire. Christians created hospitals. The idea of, of charity and the way that we view it is a very Christian ethic. It transforms the way that we view people with little means, the dignity of humanity. And we must not let the secular state rob us of our inheritance. This is part of what Christians have done to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow. There are many mercy ministries in our own church, and if you would like to get involved with them, put that in your connect card. We'd love to connect you. We've got deacons who lead many ministries in that area. We have different partnerships. There are very practical ways that we can do this. We don't have to change the world. This isn't some kind of over-idealized thing, but the small things are the things that make a big difference, especially over time. And we'd love to help connect you with that. But mercy is for those who have little, who need those basic provisions of life. Mercy also extends to a second group, the people who sin against us. 
In Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, Jesus tells a famous parable about a king who forgives the debt of one of his servants. And then later on, he sees his servant not forgiving a debt of a fellow servant. And he gets angry at him. And he says, how can you not forgive your fellow servant's debt when I've forgiven your debt? It's very important to see the point he's trying to make here. The king is the superior to the servant. He doesn't owe a forgiveness of debt. He is condescending. The greater authority is condescending and showing mercy to the lower man. How much more should the servant show mercy to his equal, another servant? It's offensive to the king. If I have condescended to show you mercy, how can you not at least do that to somebody who is on the same level as you? To your brother. And so, mercy is something that we owe one another. And when he says, the merciful receive mercy, he's not saying that God is going to tally up all the people he showed mercy to, and if it weighs enough, you'll get into heaven. No, he's saying, the people who have received mercy are marked by mercy. And those who are merciful will continually see the mercy of God. There's a symbiotic relationship to this. I think that's what's represented in that parable. If you truly are marked by the mercy of God, if that really sinks into your bones, if you understand the gospel, then withholding mercy from others makes no sense. It's something called out of us. And mercy never enables sin. God's mercy never enables sin for us, right? God's mercy confronts our sin. God's mercy does not call evil good or good evil. God uses his mercy in order to free us from sin to lift the burden of that. And that's how our mercy should be as well. We're not talking about enabling people. But we are talking about seeking to lift their burdens, to extending grace toward them and forgiveness toward them. Mercy is very difficult, though. It's interesting that a lot of these Beatitudes parallel the woes that Jesus pronounces upon the Pharisees later on in Matthew chapter 23. And I think the parallel to the blessed showing mercy is Matthew 23, 23. When Jesus, uh, he points out this interesting aspect of the Pharisees. He says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing camel. The Pharisees found a very convenient way to avoid faithfulness in one area by pointing out their faithfulness in another area. We love to make either ors out of both ends. That's our sneaky way of getting around some of the things that God commands us to do. He doesn't say, no, no, he doesn't say Pharisees, do the weightier stuff. Do justice, mercy, mercy, and faithfulness, and just forget about the tithe. That's just religious stuff. No, he says, actually, do both. You're supposed to do both. God commanded these tithes and offerings. Do both. In fact, one should lead to the other. What is a tithe and offering? It's an expression of thanksgiving to God. It's showing that, God, everything I have is yours. It's recognizing the generosity and mercy of God. And he says, if you are coming to God with your tithe with the right heart then generosity and mercy and faithfulness to others is going to outflow out of that. There should be integrity. One leads to the other. But what they have done is they're using one area of faithfulness to excuse 
an area of unfaithfulness. And we can do that many times. Never miss a quiet time. Never miss church. But you harbor bitterness and unforgiveness toward others. And you can't point to your perfect track record of religious activity to excuse a bitter heart. That's not how it works. But he says, do both. Don't pit giving to the local church against giving to the poor. In fact, they should reinforce one another. We don't want to make either ors out of both ends to let us off the hook because we're faithful in this area. That counts for a lack of faithfulness in another. We can be very sneaky with righteous excuses. But Jesus says, no, don't do that. You need to have a wholeness to the way that we live. And he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the good life. God is not a killjoy wanting you to be miserable, but he says, no, if you live into this, you're going to understand the glory of what it is to live life in God's kingdom. Let's look at the next beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this really flows out of this first one. Those who have an integrity of life, who have a wholeness of life, those are the ones who have a purity of heart, wholehearted devotion to God. The heart is the seat of the will. That's where all of our deepest allegiances are. Our deepest, the seat of what drives our passions and our habits and our actions. And when we think about this purity of heart, sometimes we only think of sexual purity, which is part of it. But purity of heart is about, you know, avoiding, you know, sexual immorality and all these types of things. But it actually extends much beyond that. Purity of heart encompasses the totality of our lives. Listen to Psalm 24. Well, I'll just summarize. Psalm 24 talks about the, the pure of heart. They're the ones who do not lift their souls up to what is false. And they, they do not swear deceitfully. There's no mask. They have integrity. They are who they say they are. They're not duplicitous. There's a wholehearted, genuine devotion to the Lord. Their outside matches their inside. And this parallels the woe in Matthew 23, 25, where Jesus says, you Pharisees, here's what you do. You wash the outside of the cup. You have your ritual purity. Every meal you wash your hands, you do the whole thing, but you don't wash the inside of the cup. And inside of your cup, you're filled with greed and self-indulgence. In other words, your your purity is merely for external show. It has not seeped into your heart, into your very affections, into the seat of your will, into the driver's seat of what what pushes forward your life. The Pharisees excuse internal purity with external purity. And Jesus says, do both. Do the ritual laws. Right? He was saying the Pharisees, that, that is what the Old Testament commands. But don't let it stop at the external things you do. You must reach your heart. Let your external cleansing cleanse your internal heart. You need to come with a genuine spirit of purity. And so this is something we pursue, a wholehearted devotion to God. And then Jesus says, those who are pure in heart will see God. It's very interesting phrasing. Just as dirt obscures our physical sight, 
Sin also obscures our spiritual sight of God. We don't perceive God physically. You know, we're not, we're not seeing Him. But we are spiritually. The, the eyes of our heart are enlightened. What does that mean? That by faith, we see Christ in the modes in which He has promised to close, disclose Himself to us. We see Him in the Word of God. We see Him as we pray. We see Him in the Lord's Supper. We can see Him in Creation, all of creation resounds the glory of God. And we see him in one another, in the image of God in one another. And the more wholehearted devotion to God we have, the more we see the glory of God in these things, the more we see them in one another. That's why James in 1 John connects love of God to love of brother. Because the more we see God, the more we see the dignity of man. But the difficulty is that self-deception, the self-deception of sin, blinds us to these realities. It obscures our sight. In The Great Divorce, which is one of C.S. Lewis's best books, I feel you can say that about every one of C.S. Lewis's books, but this is a really good book. And it's a, it's a story, kind of an allegory, of a, 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 an imaginative uh, conception of heaven and hell. And in the book, these ghostly inhabitants of hell take a bus ride to heaven. And they're unable to see the glory of heaven because of their various levels of sinful self-deception. In other words, they're there in paradise, but because of the state of their heart, they don't see it as paradise. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. But what's fascinating are the types of people who refuse heaven, who cannot see through their blindness. There's a bishop, a former bishop, who's lost in intellectualism, There's this artist who's obsessed with reputation. There's a cynic who sees through it all. There's a bully who can't stand that there are people lesser than him in heaven. And there's a nagging wife who laments that she can't dominate her husband in heaven. And finally, there's a man corrupted by lust. And of all of those men and women, the only one who repents, the only one who converts and changes is the man consumed with lust. It's a very painful moment where this angel kind of burns this lizard off of his shoulder and then he's transformed into a creature of glory and he sees the glory of heaven. I think it's interesting what Lewis is doing here. Why is it the lust-consumed man who gets it? I think it's because that's the least respectable of those sins. Every one of those can be seen as virtues. Oh, you're so wise. You're so brilliant. You're so intellectual. You're so loving. You're all these things. They can all masquerade as virtue. But lust, it's still got that ick factor. And I wonder if Lewis is showing the guy who's consumed with his lust, he actually sees something that the others don't. He sees the depth of his own sin, the impurity of his own heart. Lewis is shining a light on our respectable sins, the elitism, the vanity, the overbearing control, even our warped senses of love. And this man consumed by his own lust, this non-respectable sin, he's the one who repents. It's not enough to just avoid impurity. We must pursue purity of heart. And that means removing the illusions of our own righteousness, removing some of the things that we're proud of that can be lifted up as good things but really blind us to the truth 
of God. Listen to 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, there's a symbiotic relationship here. God opens up our eyes to the gospel and we see his purity and that motivates and energizes our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of purity. And as we pursue purity and grow in our devotion to God, we see a greater vision of God. And as we see that, that further energizes us toward holiness. That's what it means to be pure in heart. That wholehearted devotion to God. A, A pure in heart person is not a perfect person. Just like a healthy person is not a person who never gets sick, or is perfectly healthy in every way. No, they're, they're marked by a pursuit, not perfection. And so the pure in heart, they're not those who never sin. They're those who, when they sin, they repent. They confess it. They turn. And they receive the gospel over and over again. Every Sunday, we hear and see Christ by faith in his word, in the supper, in one another, in prayer as we sing. And it's meant to propel us forward into lives of purity so that we see more of him. And when we come back, it's a more joyful experience and we're energized in the week. And we come back and it's supposed to be this thing that builds, builds and fills us up with the love of God. So our moral character affects our spiritual vision. And so purity of heart is very important for us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's look at the next beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. What are peacemakers? They are those who labor to settle differences and remove hostility between people. They labor to settle differences and to remove hostility between people. They don't avoid conflict. They don't paper over conflict. They don't say peace, peace, where there is no peace. But they address conflict with the truth in order to bring true peace, real peace. The prophets condemn false peace. Jesus told his disciples that he came not to bring peace, but a sword that divides households. And what he's saying is, I'm disrupting false peace in order to bring about true peace. God's truth disrupts false peace with truth. It's very important. That's what distinguishes the peacemaking that disciples are to make. And this focus on truth marks out peacemakers as sons of God. Sons reflect the nature of their fathers. Sons come from their fathers, and they they have family similarities with him. God the Father always speaks truth, and his sons must do the same. We never shortcut the difficult process of making peace with convenient lies, but you labor over time, bearing with one another in order to reconcile brothers and sisters who are against each other. Most of Paul's letters are all peacemaking letters. I mean, literally every one of them is just like, guys, please, right? Please settle this, right? And he comes to them with the truth, sometimes with Great force, but always rooted in love. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He exhorts the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's a theological issue at stake here. 
the bond of peace, the Spirit has already objectively bound us together in Christ, and now we have to live out that reality. And we are being false to the calling that God has given us if we bite and devour one another, as he talks about in Galatians. Paul roots peace in the truth. There's something far greater at stake here. And this requires us to have a thick skin. Peacemaking is serious business. It's not for the faint of heart. Think about what skin does for us. Skin is a permeable layer. It keeps out bad things, but it also allows good things to come in. Without skin, our bodies would be overrun with contaminants and toxins of the world. But if we wear a hazmat suit all the time, we can't interact with the world. Skin allows us to be protected, to maintain an integrity of self while also interacting with other people. And that's what a peacemaker has to do. We're able to interact with one another, with people who disagree, even very seriously. We're able to bear with the offenses of others without losing our own integrity and our well-being. Peacemakers are essential, not only to protect their own integrity, but also the integrity of the entire church community. How many churches do you know that have shut down or died because of external persecution? Maybe a couple. How many churches do you know that have died because of infighting? It's a much higher body count. That's why Paul labors in Philippians. He says to these two women who are fighting, he says, Yodia and Syntyche, please agree. Agree in the Lord. Work this out. You need to work this out. Because the unity of the church is important. And it's going to take time. And you can't have a false peace, but it is key and central to the health of the church. We need peacemakers. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out a peacemaking process. He talks about the brother sins against you, you go to him, you talk to him. You don't gossip about him, you don't slander him, you go to him and you say, hey, let's talk about this. And if he refuses, you bring one or two more. If he refuses again, you bring the whole church. And then if it gets to the point where there is so much hostility and a refusal to repent, there's excommunication. But even that is meant to preserve the peace of the church and with the hope of restoration of that brother. The hope that one day he will come back and there will be peace. So actually confronting these things and being truthful with one another is how true peace can be made. Every step is toward reconciliation and restoration. This is how the family of God operates. This is what it means to be sons of God, to reflect God's character. God speaks the truth, but he reconciles people to himself and people to one another, and he wants us to reflect that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Finally, the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. When others uh, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about people reviling and persecuting you and uttering evil against you falsely on his account. And he says, this is what happened to the prophets who came before you. When we think about persecution, we're talking about the unjust reproach and hostility of others for the name of Christ. And Jesus 
kind of breaks the pattern here. In the other ones, he says, blessed are this group of people. But then he says, blessed are the persecuted. And then he says, blessed are you. And I think he's saying that all Christians should expect some form of this in their lives for the sake of Christ. Sometimes we shy away from using persecution because I think sometimes we do have a persecution complex. You know, we can be overly sensitive to these things. Especially when we think about our brothers and sisters who are giving their lives in other nations. But notice here, the emphasis is not on martyrdom necessarily, on shedding your blood, but on people slandering you, on words. That is persecution. When people speak falsely about you because of your testimony for Christ. Why is slander and reviling, why is that so difficult for us? Think about the ninth commandment, don't bear false witness. Because what happens when you bear false witness? You kill someone's social reputation. You attack their life. We need a social reputation. We need to be able to operate in society healthily. And if that's cut off, we're cut off from provision. We're cut off from relationships. There's a violence done to us in that way. And this is why it's a very fearful thing. And why the ninth commandment exists. Because it's a terrible thing to bear false witness against someone. But Jesus says, actually, if you face this, don't be afraid. This is a very hard thing. If people are going to lie about you and charge you with all kinds of things because of Christ, he says, you rejoice. Because God will give you a reward. And because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And I think this, that the, the, the promise of the kingdom of heaven is parallel to the first beatitude, to the, uh, to the lowly, to, the, to those who are poor in spirit. There's probably a connection there. Those who are persecuted and reviled are those who are going to have a lowly spirit. You're not going to have the great status in the world. But what you have is a promise of that reward and a promise of the kingdom, a promise that God sees you and he knows what you're enduring and he does not count it as cheap but he sees it and he recognizes it and he will bless you in it. And the parallel is in Matthew 23, 29, verse 29 to 31, when Jesus rebukes the false righteousness of the Pharisees and he pronounces a woe and he says, you guys, you decorate the monuments of the prophets and you say you would have loved them if you were alive in their day. But your ancestors murdered them. You don't love the prophets. You love looking like you love the prophets. But you have someone in front of you who is speaking the words of the prophets and you hate him. Christ. And he says that's a hypocrisy. In other words, the reviling will come from a false sense of righteousness. The the reviling will come as a righteous crusade against you. They're going to be convinced that you are on the wrong side of history. We're on the right side. We're the ones who are fighting for truth and holiness and righteousness and justice in the world. And you, you are shameful. So they said to Christ, they said he was demon-possessed. He was a blasphemer. And how did Christ respond? How did the persecutor respond? And Jesus says, you need to rejoice. There's a reward. You know you're on the right side of history because you're on the side of Christ. And then he says, you know, when he's, when he's being persecuted himself, when he's being reviled, 
about to be crucified, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He responds to his enemies with blessing. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, when he's being stoned to death in Acts 7.60, he says similar words to Christ. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is what it means to love our enemies. And Jesus later on in his Sermon on the Mount is going to explain that further. He says, anyone can love their neighbor. You benefit from that. But divine love is what motivates you to love your enemy, to bless him, to seek his good. Because God loves his enemies. We were all enemies of God. And God loved us. And he blessed us. And God turns enemies into sons. Stephen's being stoned, and they say that the, the mob, they took Stephen's clothes and they laid them, or rather they, 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 they brought a report of that to, to a man named Saul. And it says Saul approved of his execution. And a few chapters later, Saul the persecuted, the, the persecutor becomes Saul the persecuted. He's transformed. We know him as the Apostle Paul. He was a persecutor of Christians, and he was transformed by the gospel. That's what God does. And we have to reflect that. We don't just tolerate those who revile us, but we pray for them. We bless them. We want their ultimate good. We want their conversion. Because we were once enemies. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that ought to motivate the way that we treat other people. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All of these things are proactive. We must be proactive in our pursuit of righteousness, in the relationships, the concrete relationships of our lives, empowered by looking at that future hope, trusting the words of Christ who went before us and embodied all of these things. So do you need to show mercy to someone? Follow Christ and show mercy. Do you want a pure heart? Follow Christ. Repent of impurity. Pursue Him. Do you feel ostracized in your faith, at your workplace, with your friends, with your family? Is that difficult for you? Follow Christ. Rejoice. See your reward. And pray for them. Pray for them. Call down blessing for them. This is what it means to count all things as Loss for the sake of gaining Christ? Is there peace that must be made between you and someone else? Or do you see peace that must be made and you can be a peacemaker in that? Follow Christ and do it. We don't do this because we're, we have a martyr complex or we just love pain or we love suffering. No, we do this because we are objects of God's mercy. Because by faith we see Christ. Because we are sons of the Father. Because we have a kingdom and a hope and a reward. Because God is with us that we might share in his sufferings, that we might know his resurrecting power. That's the good life. That's the flourishing life. And that's what we're invited to.